Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. What does Clarence Thomas really believe? I'm Sean Elliott, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I, Clarence Thomas. I, Clarence Thomas. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will well and faithfully perform. That I will well and faithfully perform. The duties of the office on which I... It's hard to find a more polarizing figure in American politics than Clarence Thomas. So help me God. There have been many difficult days as we all went through the confirmation battle. And I mean we all. But on this sunny day in October, there is joy. Joy in the morning. He was appointed to the court in 1991 after a contentious confirmation hearing where he was accused of sexual misconduct by Anita Hill. Thomas has now been on the Supreme Court for over three decades, longer than any other sitting justice. And from the bench, his hardline positions have bedeviled the left and made him a hero of the American right. On everything from capital punishment Thus, Kansas may direct imposition of the death penalty. To abortion rights. The Constitution does not prohibit a state from banning this horrifying and rarely used procedure that many find hard to distinguish from infanticide. To religious freedom. Milford, by denying the club access on the ground that the club is religious in nature, discriminated against the club because of its religious view. However you feel about Clarence Thomas, it's very likely that his worldview is a lot more complicated than you think. Though my mere presence has been sufficient, obviously, to anger some, I have come here today to assert my right to think for myself, to refuse to have my ideas assigned to me as though I was an intellectual slave. And that's why I invited Corey Robin onto the show. 
Robin's a political theorist at Brooklyn College, and he wrote a fascinating book on the life and thought of Thomas back in 2019. It was called The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. And he recently wrote a New Yorker piece on Thomas in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. We talk about the many contradictions in Thomas's life, how he became an unlikely champion of modern conservatism, and why he still doesn't believe in racial progress. Corey Robin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I'm just curious, why did you decide to spend so much of your time studying Clarence Thomas, of all people? I mean, I know one of your interests as a political theorist is the history of conservatism, but why devote so much of your scholarly attention to this one guy? Well, it started by accident. I was asked to write a chapter in an anthology on African-American political thought on him, Hmm. which I didn't want to do. I thought I was done with the right. And in the course of that chapter and the research, I just discovered this story that I didn't feel had been told, much less understood, which is the how does this guy who is a black nationalist on the left starts out there end up as the hero of the Trumpist right on the Supreme Court? Well, I'm glad you used that phrase, black nationalist, right? Because anyone who thinks they know anything about Clarence Thomas will likely be surprised to hear you say that he's a black nationalist. So I want to start there. What does that mean? So the term black nationalism, we should first of all say, like any other political term, is very contested. I think people have a lot of romantic associations with the term third world revolution, believing in black territorial self-determination, believing in an authentic, distinct black culture. And historically, that has been true of some black nationalists, but it is a very complex intellectual political tradition. And I basically follow the Harvard philosopher Tommy Shelby's definition that it is broadly understood a pragmatic tradition of black self-organization that basically understands the fate of black people in America as a part, Mm. as separate from the fate of certainly white America and even America as a whole. And in the case of Clarence Thomas, permanently apart. That is that there is a fundamental irreconcilable difference that sees no end in sight. Well, as you just alluded to, he was, when he was younger in college, he was involved with leftists, black nationalist movements. And then he pivots to the right in the 70s. What happened? A couple of things. The first thing to note is that when he becomes politically active in the late 1960s, 1968, 1969, the black freedom struggle is already in recession. 1968 is really, you know, is the year, of course, that Martin Luther King is assassinated. Malcolm X has been assassinated. Bobby Kennedy has been assassinated. And it's also the final year where there's really big legislative achievements for African-Americans. And everything after that, and you can see this in the history and the testimony and so forth, is always less than what had come before. So defeat, the specter of defeat, the specter of loss, haunts, hangs over Clarence Thomas's engagement with Black nationalism from the very beginning. This is not a optimistic, upward-looking movement. This is a movement that's trying to come to terms with the defeat. That's the first thing. The second thing that I think is a part of that is that understanding that 
the future is grim, is looking bleak, a lot of black nationalists, more at the local level, black power activists and so forth, begin to experiment with basically what would you call forms of capitalism. They no longer believe in the power of politics. And when I say politics, I mean that broadly defined, whether it's electoral politics, social movements, protests, radical action. What they think is that they have to find some way to get some kind of economic sovereignty. And so that is really the backdrop to Thomas's move to the right. It's the sense of defeat over the black freedom struggle and also the beginning engagement with forms of economic capitalist activity, which I should just point out just one other thing about that, has a long history in the black nationalist tradition from Marcus Garvey, even Malcolm X. You can read parts of Malcolm X's autobiography, very much talks about the importance of black ownership of businesses and black hiring and all that kind of stuff. And even if I recall from your book, even in college among his peers, right? And in college, everyone is very engaged, for all kinds of reasons, he stood out. I mean, he was really, really engaged and really political, even in his early 20s. Yeah, and particularly, I should say, on the question of Black separatism. He is one of the founders of the Black Student Union at Holy Cross, which he starts attending in 1968. That term itself, as Malcolm X had testified before he had been assassinated, you know, the idea of saying Black was already a kind of a statement, particularly on the East Coast. And he was the secretary treasurer of the Black Student Union, and they had a manifesto. And in the various points of the manifesto were very strong stances against interracial dating, interracial relationships, statements about the importance of black women to black men, of black men standing up for black women. And Thomas was, even in this group, noted for his militants on that topic. He would, you know, walk around on campus and if he would see interracial couples, he would call them out. And by his senior year of college, he had been, I think, either engaged or certainly very near about there, married to his first wife, Kathy Ambush, who was a black woman. So the centrality of race and gender and male honor was, you know, very important to Thomas, which, as we're going to see, is important throughout his thinking across the board. And I can ask, what was the objection to interracial relationships or interracial marriages? Was it that it kind of cut against this effort to be separate yeah. from white America? Yeah, I think it was partially that. I think it was also a code of black masculinity. I think part of Thomas's black nationalism, and again, many black nationalism, is that the cornerstone of the black community is black men, the black patriarch. And that, you know, black women are, on the one hand, idolized as, you know, icons of beauty and of respect on the one hand, but also, and this is very true in Thomas's case, viewed very threateningly, because if a black woman starts getting involved with a white man, that will dissipate the black community. Of course, you know, it's a double standard because there's not the same fear of black men getting involved with white women. So it's, it's this code of black masculine honor and power and authority that stands as the basis, as the pillar of the black community. And if he falls, the black man, the community goes with him. So I think that's a lot of what's going on there in these notions. Yeah, that is something I learned in your book that he has said quite plainly that the salvation of the black race in his mind depends upon black men, hence the belief in patriarchy. This is one area where his conservatism and black nationalism really converge. 
Yeah, and I should say that statement that you're quoting there was from the mid-1980s. This is long after he's made his pilgrimage to the right. This is at the high point of his power in the Reagan administration, just a few years before he's going to be appointed to the Supreme Court. So we're not talking some furtive comment from 1968 that I found in a newspaper. This is really out there in the mid-1980s. Thomas is deeply, almost instinctively opposed to anything that smacks of what you call, or maybe what he calls, white paternalism. I think it's important to just say what that is. What does that mean? I think uh, you can see echoes of Malcolm X here. And I should say he read Malcolm X's autobiography in his freshman year of college. He had posters of Malcolm X all around his dorm room. He memorized the speeches of Malcolm X by listening to records of Malcolm X's speeches. So Malcolm X was a really formative influence on him. And Malcolm X, like many black nationalists, Marcus Garvey was very similar, had this distinction between two types of white people. There's the overt racist, the wolf, as Malcolm X calls him, who is unabashed, completely honest and open in his or her racism and beliefs, makes no pretense about his or her assumption of black racial inferiority. That's, you know, the kind that Thomas would have encountered in the South, where Thomas is from. Then there is the liberal white, and for Thomas, racist, who is not hateful overtly, who is sympathetic, who wants to help. But in the act of offering help, will always remind you of the help that he or she has offered, will never let you forget that there but for the grace of me go you. And Malcolm X called this person the fox. Thomas has his own animal iconography that he used. He compares the copperhead to the water moccasin. But it's the same typology. And that is the white paternalist, is somebody who wants to help, but will never let you forget that he or she has helped you. And that with the helping hand that they extend, you know, with one hand, they take away with the other. And Thomas has this very vivid moment in his memoir where he says, you know, I got as far as I got in the South where he went through high school in spite of my race. And it was very clear that everything I achieved and not only that I achieved, but that the black community achieved was ours because it was in spite of our race. Race was everything against us. When he comes to the North, the message to him, he says, is you got here be." because of your race. Race is a helping hand. And he says, this is just this obfuscation, this lack of clarity, whereby we can no longer attribute our achievements, whether individual or collective. And I really stress that collective because he's not a rugged individualist by any means. But we are no longer the authors of our own achievement. We have co-authors, we have helpers, we have editors, we have people, facilitators, and they're all white. Yeah. And for him, this is this devastating moment of self-recognition, self-existential crisis, really, that leads him to forever loathe anything of white paternalism, which he thinks is, in the end, more dangerous than white racism. And to make this clear, and this is why he would think of even white liberals as racist, he believes that any help that Black Americans get from white Americans, whatever motivates it, can only enfeeble Black people. Hence, something like affirmative action is, in his mind, 
toxic or counterproductive for that very reason. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It is white harm. And again, I think it's important because he's often misread by both conservatives and liberals as saying he's against collective forms of help mm. and provision. He's not. Yeah. He is against what he perceives to be white collective forms of provision. And I should say, you know, in fairness, white liberals and the kind of black liberals who he thinks are their kind of capos and enablers and traitors to the black community, basically. What does Thomas think of liberal or progressive black Americans who I'm sure believe that they're defending black dignity and that he is effectively a bulwark for white supremacy? I mean, what is his response to those accusations, which I am sure he has heard for decades now? Yeah, it goes way back, actually. And this gets to, I think, a very sensitive, delicate part of his, both his biography and his political outlook that I think is only really discussed with any forthrightness and candor by other black scholars and journalists. And that is that, you know, Clarence Thomas is a dark-skinned black person. He was born in Pinpoint, Georgia in 1948. And then when he's six years old, he moves to Savannah. And he's in an all-black environment, at least until high school. And his first encounter with the color line, remember this is the Jim Crow South, his first encounter of the color line is when he is mercilessly teased by other black kids as being blacker than they are. He was called ABC, America's Blackest Child. He had much more sort of dark skins features. And he associated the lighter skinned black kids with the local black elite the lawyers, the doctors, the professional managerial class, we would say today. Yeah. And that is a separation between those two. And it's a class distinction, really, within the Black community, but that's got a patent of color assigned to it. And this is called colorism, is the term. He will forever associate that line between dark and light skin with Black liberals versus kind of the salt of the earth black community that he believes he represents. So later on, for instance, Patricia Harris, a name that most people won't recognize, he was in the Jimmy Carter's cabinet, big icons in the black political community, or Drew Days, who was Bill Clinton's solicitor general. These are lighter skinned, and he focused on those two in particular, because they were, you know, light skinned, as representing kind of black liberalism. He claims those people see themselves as the emissaries of the white community. Yeah. Again, this is something that you can see in W.B. Du Bois, some of his articles in the 1930s, similar kinds of arguments. Yeah. So the idea that black liberals are really the enforcers of the white racial order because they are elite, because they are more in contact with white people, because they have a kind of social bearing and social class markers, is at the heart of that. And I should say, you know, this is not uncommon. I mean, Hannah Arendt in, you know, Eichmann in Jerusalem talks about similar kinds of dynamics within the Jewish community. I mean, I think a lot of communities that are oppressed create these kinds of divisions within the community and they reflect a certain kind of reality. Yeah. And I think, you know, Thomas has a very clear answer to that, which is you people are enablers and you benefit. Of course, you would look around today, black people who have advanced in the Democratic Party and the judiciary who are all liberals. And this is how he would view them as 
traitors and beneficiaries of the white racial order. Does he even think of those people as well-intentioned or does he see them as malicious operators who are intending to do harm to the black community? I think he sees them as malicious operators. And it's a good question. It's sort of a narcissism of, you know, not quite small differences, but of inner differences, let's say. I think he views them with much, much greater hostility than he does even white liberals and white progressives. That's so interesting. And I should say, jumping ahead, but this is, you know, when the whole Anita Hill business breaks open. Judge Clarence Thomas had appeared to be within days of confirmation to the Supreme Court when the Anita Hill story broke. Now he was forced to return to the Judiciary Committee to defend himself and did so with a blistering attack against his accuser, his opponents, and against the committee itself. Part of the rhetorical firepower that he's able to throw in that moment, many people think he's just being cynical and instrumental and manipulative and performative, some of which is true. But this is a narrative that he has been constructing for his entire adult political life that there are sectors of the black community who are allies of white liberals and they are the enemy. The way the whole Anita Hill fiasco played out, was that actually an affirmation of his despair about race relations in the country? Absolutely. The people who are closest and know him best, and I think the most candid say, you know, this was his moment of truth. And what I say in the book is, it's a moment of lying, because it's very clear to me, I mean, and I think to most neutral observers, that he committed perjury, and that he did sexually harass Anita Hill and was lying about that. But it was also this moment of truth where Anita Hill had stepped forward as this witness against him in his hearings to the Supreme Court sort of came out of nowhere at the last minute and was sponsored by and working with all these liberal feminist groups, all these Teddy Kennedy, Howard Metzenbaum, the whole liberal Democratic establishment in the Senate. And she's testifying against him. And Thomas famously blasts back. I think that this today is a travesty. I think that it is disgusting, and from my standpoint, as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves. And it is a message that unless you kowtow to an old order, this is what will happen to you. You will be lynched, destroyed, caricatured by a committee of the U.S. Senate rather than hung from a tree. And there is just, there's just no doubt that he believes every single word that he is saying and had been saying for many, many years. I'm no stranger to pessimism, but I, I have a hard time understanding his belief that it's impossible, foolish, really, to reimagine or even improve race relations. Like, I, I accept that racism has been a recurring feature of human life, and I don't imagine a racism-free future, but one doesn't have to believe in that kind of fantasy to believe in the possibility, hell, in the reality of progress. Why is he so deeply pessimistic? Why is this broken beyond repair? I mean, I think there's a couple of things that I would say about that. The first is, is to remember, he is an ideologue. Yeah. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. Yeah. This is somebody who takes an idea, as Hannah Arendt said, and takes it all the way to the end. Yeah. 
and he always has been. He believes in following it to its logical conclusion. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, and I think we really cannot underestimate the impact of being part of a movement of a moment of social and political hope, making tremendous sacrifices. I'm not talking about Thomas himself. I'm talking about black activists, people who created the black freedom struggle, of which he was sort of a part. And then to see that defeated. And the corrosiveness of that, the drip, drip every day of seeing it go down, 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 I think makes it to me at least somewhat understandable and intelligible. I mean, I've been involved in left political circles since I was, you know, in graduate school and on a much smaller scale. And I think it's, it's hard to sustain hope in the face of defeat, not in the face of oppression, not in the face of injustice, but in the face of mobilizing all these people and thinking history is about to be made in a certain way and to then see it stop. And the taking apart of legal Jim Crow was obviously a massive social victory, but that was supposed to be just the beginning. That wasn't supposed to be the end goal. And so I think it's hard to underestimate the impact of that on people. And so I think the combination of those two things, the experience of defeat and then following the inferences of that all the way, I think can lead to the sort of position he occupies. Yeah, and I just want to really ram this point home because this is something that distinguishes him from a lot of conservatives who want to insist that racism actually isn't a problem anymore. I mean, he does not believe in colorblindness. He doesn't think colorblindness is possible at all. Is that right? Yeah, he's very upfront about that. He says that both in his speeches and he says versions of that in his Supreme Court opinions. And sometimes it's very overt and obvious where he's saying that. And then sometimes it's a little bit more subtle. But that is the very, you know, I think unsettling, disturbing vision that is at the heart of his jurisprudence is the persistence and obdurateness of race. And he's not just pessimistic about race. I mean, he's extremely pessimistic about the very idea of government. He doesn't believe in it. He doesn't believe it can protect citizens. Right. And that's connected with the idea of race, which is that government is always going to be government of the white majority. And if you believe that the white majority is perdurably racist, incurably racist, there are not many possibilities there. Now, I think a lot of, a fair number of people, I think today on the left, especially on the white left, will say, oh yeah, white people are always going to be racist and whatever. And I think, you know, this is where Thomas the ideologue comes in. He says, okay, let's follow out the implications of that. Tell me what you're going to do. How are you going to overcome? Well, well, you know, we'll have gerrymandered districts that will create black majority districts and all the rest of it. And what Thomas always comes back to is that's fine. But who's doing all that work for black people? It's not black people doing it. It's white people doing it for black people. And that's what progressive government is for him. I want to be very careful about how I say this, because I am not saying that Clarence Thomas prefers to live in the version of America in which slavery or Jim Crow exist. But he does seem nostalgic about the strength and the spirit of resistance that those horrors cultivated in Black Americans. Again, I'm not saying that means he wants to go back to that, but he seems to believe that 
something has been lost in the movement from that America to this America, and it has been catastrophic for his people, his people. Yeah. I mean, there's no, you can't put too fine a point, you know, on this. He's very clear about this and has been for some time that there were virtues and skills and habits and practices and institutions that were cultivated among black people, particularly among black men under slavery and under Jim Crow that created the possibility for survival and endurance. And I think this is a really important part of his philosophy. He does not believe in black emancipation. He does not believe in progress. He believes in survival and persistence. And I think, again, this is where some of the stuff that he says starts to sort of ring across party lines because, you know, I think it's certainly true if you read a lot of contemporary African-American political thought, academic thought, those themes of resistance, persistence, survival, endurance, not overcoming, not progress, but the ability to stay out on that bleak rock and live. That is ground zero of Thomas's philosophy. And so when he looks back to Jim Crow and slavery, I don't think it's actually with nostalgia. If anything, he paints it in the darkest shades of the heart of darkness, only to emphasize the miracle of Black survival against those odds. And I think that's really the story. And it's a miracle of Black men. It's been more than three decades since Clarence Thomas was appointed to the Supreme Court. What do his critics get wrong? And why is that such a big problem? That's coming up after a quick break. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbara Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
would you describe his influence on the court since he got there more than three decades ago? This is something you talk about very forcefully, that he he is often caricatured on the left. I mean, he's seen as some kind of you know conservative patsy or something like that. But that is so comically wrong and misses how serious and consequential he is and has become. I mean, maybe he is extreme, but he has a coherent worldview and he has achieved enormous power. He is winning. How do you think about the influence he has exercised on the court and how it's really changed the country? I mean, I should say, before I answer that question, that's part of the enigma of Clarence Thomas yeah. to me, was not just that he's this black nationalist, conservative black nationalist. We've seen all of that. It's that he's on the Supreme Court and that he's achieved, and I'll explain more about the power that he's achieved there, <laughs> and nobody seems to know it yeah. or see it. Yeah. And so I take as the epigraph of the book from Ralph Allison's The Opening Passage of Invisible Man, because up until very, very recently, I should say, because I think it's beginning to change, but he is the invisible man on the Supreme Court. If you look at a lot of the key issues, whether it is campaign finance, the Second Amendment being a right not of state militias, but of the individual right to bear arms, most recently, the idea that abortion is somehow or another a vaguely genocidal program against black people, which you can see in a footnote in the Hobbes decision that Alito wrote, all of these things were Clarence Thomas specials. And that when he wrote them initially was either laughed out of court or completely overlooked and ignored because the assumption was, you know, Scalia is the real mover and shaker and Thomas is taking his marching orders from him. And the irony was, of course, that as many journalists, you know, not obscure journalists, but, you know, CNN journalists and so forth were reporting all along. Yeah. All the reporting showed that Thomas was pushing Scalia, even Rehnquist and Kennedy at times in the 90s, further to the right on criminal justice issues. And then, as I say, on campaign finance, yeah. he took the far right position. It's, you know, increasingly the, the mainstream position on the Second Amendment and a host of other issues. And it's not just that, I should say. He also, his clerks have become extraordinarily influential, both under the Trump administration. He had the most clerks who were appointed in the administration itself and who were appointed to lower positions in the courts. So increasingly, I mean, I always urge people now, when you see a federal justice, particularly if they were appointed by Trump, see who they clerk for. And not always, but oftentimes it'll be a Clarence Thomas clerk. I really wonder what he makes of the Trumpification of the Republican Party, the Trumpification of conservatism. I mean, is this the direction he wanted conservatism to go? I think it's a really excellent question, and it's one that I wrestled with a lot. And of course, as we find out more and more about Ginny Thomas and her role in January 6th, the sort of premonitions and suspicions and speculations that I had that I was very ginger about in the book because I didn't have hugest amount of evidence for have all become true. And that is to say that a white nationalist Republican Party fits very, very well with the Clarence Thomas view of the world. And this is something that goes way back. I mean, when he was first asked, well, you know, how could you be involved with the Reagan administration? And don't forget, you know, a lot of people in the Reagan administration were hardcore racists and bigots. I mean, they weren't necessarily the front men, but in the Justice Department and places like that, they were really hardcore. Yeah. And he would say, these are people who don't 
they don't lie to you about how they think. They don't smile at you. And I think the white nationalization of the Republican Party, you know, he's very comfortable with because what do he and they share? It is this view that the races are different. The races are never going to get along. This is a white man's country. And black people are going to have to find find their own way. And this gets back to your earlier question about Jim Crow and so forth. To the extent that that party will or can recreate some of the conditions of Jim Crow. And by that, I mean, you know, the conditions of real exigency for black people beyond what they are facing today. He believes this is going to be a potential renaissance. And let me just add one thing. The fact that you see at the margins, I don't want to exaggerate it, but, you know, black people shifting to the Republican Party. The fact that among the biggest buyers of guns in the last four to five years have been black and brown people, I think is sort of music to his ears. It's like it's all coming home. I don't want to tiptoe around this. I can understand the the common cause that a white nationalist and a black nationalist could make insofar as they both want to live separate <laughs> from each other. But I'm trying to make sense of how Clarence Thomas ends up marrying someone like yeah. Jenny Thomas. And yeah. for people who don't know that, it's his wife. She's a very prominent conservative activist, someone who believes the election was stolen, someone who was urging Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff, to help overturn the election while she's married to a sitting Supreme Court justice. I'm not really sure there is a question here, but the stench of corruption and the paradox of this marriage at all is just bewildering to me. What do you make of all of that, any of it? Well, and you also neglected, I think, with, again, it's usually people who are Black readers who are most forthright about this, who ask about it, which is that she's white, Jenny Thomas. <laughs> yeah. She's not Black. Yes. And it's a complicated question. And I mean, I should first of all say, I've been asked about this before, and I usually punt because I don't really know the nature of their relationship. I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, all I can say is that there's very little that's inconsistent about what she stands for and does and what he stands for and does, the sort of personal corruption and all the rest of it is not a big part of what he talks about and, you know, whatever. So I can't really speak to that, except to just say that if she represents Trump and he represents himself, again, those two things go together in ways that transcend the moment. Marcus Garvey thought the Ku Klux Klan were his allies, against liberal, democratic, or not quite democratic, Republicans and whites, and so forth. And so I tend to see it through that matrix and that lens. Hmm. But the actual interstices of their collaboration, I just can't speak to. Well, yeah, if we push this any further, we're going to dive into psychoanalysis, and I don't want to go there. So let me pivot back to the man and his ideas. You know, one of the contradictions you explore in your book is this fact that Thomas is an avowed originalist, which is to say someone who is committed to applying the Constitution as it was adopted in 1788, and yet he acknowledges that the Constitution was written by and for slaveholders. He's a smart guy. How does he reconcile that contradiction? But actually, as I'm asking the question, I'm wondering if it's really a contradiction at all. Yeah. Perhaps it is totally consistent with his pessimism about the hopelessness of America's race problem. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the quick answer. I just want to slightly complicate it because Thomas is interesting. 
Most conservative originalists believe in the Constitution as you just outlined it, the one that was written in 1787 and adopted in 1789. Thomas is somewhat unique in that he pays very close attention to the Reconstruction Amendments that came out of the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, Mm -hmm. and says quite forthrightly that these were transformative amendments that created a kind of new American state. Which, again, a lot of conservatives really resist that. And if you read any of his opinions involving those amendments, what really just blew me away, to be honest with you, and they're long. I mean, they're not short. He is steeped in the historiography of Reconstruction and the Civil War and the antebellum years, extensively citing from Herbert Apthecker's pioneering history of slave revolts. Herbert Apthecker, for listeners who don't know, was a Communist Party historian in the United States. And Thomas frequently cites Eric Foner's book on Reconstruction. So he really takes seriously what happened. And so what I'd say is, is that Thomas has two constitutions. One is the Black Constitution that came out of that experience of enslavement, emancipation, and civil war and Reconstruction. The other is the White Constitution, the one that you referred to. And they both have status in the originalist canon for Thomas. Again, unlike many conservatives. Now, What he does with those Reconstruction Amendments is very unsettling because essentially what it, I'm being very crude here, but what it really comes down to is the right to bear arms is the central right that comes out of that experience. Again, very crude. And that fits with this kind of antagonistic view between the races. Oh, it's always in conflict. And if you read some of his opinions about the right to bear arms, you know, again, you've got this image of the black man, the black patriarch protecting his family, protecting his children, protecting his wife against these white marauders. Like that's, that's the cornerstone of the vision of the black constitution is the black armed man. However, there's also the white constitution, which you alluded to. And there, I think it's what you said. It's not really a contradiction. It is a constitution that was written by and for white men. And to the extent that Thomas upholds it, you can see him, again, trying to create those conditions of adversity, exigency, and difficulty against which heroic black men resisted and overcame. And I think the way I say it is, is that the black constitution is protecting a black patriarch that exists where he exists, armed against white people. The white constitution is trying to create that black patriarch where he has been displaced or dissipated by the forces of white liberalism. And his legal vision, such as it is, is anchored to this to an interpretation of of a section of the 14th Amendment called the Due Process Clause. You're alluding to this a second ago. It's at the center of your New Yorker piece. According to him, we have misread this clause, and it is the source of all of our problems, most of our problems. Tell me about this, if you can, briefly. Why is he so focused on this very particular section, this very particular clause? So the Due Process Clause, for people who don't know, it says that the state cannot deprive persons of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And for liberals, first and foremost, what does it mean? And for liberals say, you know, it's that there are certain rights that are so fundamental, constitutive, at the core of what it means to be a free human being, that no state can deprive you of it unless there's a really goddamn good reason for doing so. In other words, it's not enough just to dot your I's and cross your T's. When it comes to core freedoms of the body, privacy, that kind of thing, the state really cannot 
do it unless it absolutely must. There's a very high threshold, right? That's what we call substantive due process. And for Thomas, that view of substantive due process is behind all the big rights revolutions of the 20th century that he thinks undid black men. So first, welfare rights, the New Deal, the social welfare state, that kind of right to economic well-being, diminished the status of black male wage earners and, and also told black men you don't have to earn a wage. So it hurt them that way. The sexual revolution, sexual freedom, birth control, abortion, all the rest of it, told black men you can have sex without consequence. And so black men fled, this is Thomas speaking here, fled their responsibilities to their wives and their children. And then the due process revolution and criminal justice, protecting criminal rights. All of these things essentially toppled black men from their throne within the black community, either pushed them away or lured them away. And he thinks this has been a disaster for black men and a disaster for the black community. So that's, for him, is the siren song of substantive due process. And he wants to just, to wrap that up, return to an, a very much more literal definition of procedural due process, which is literally, you know, the state can take away these freedoms so long as it goes through certain steps. Do you think he's making a good faith legal argument there, or is that a reverse engineered political argument where he's just working back from a political outcome that he finds undesirable for whatever reason, and then groping for a legal argument against it or with which to undermine it? I think both. The side that's good faith, where he has, I think, reason, at least on somewhat on his side, is that, and this is really directed at his fellow conservatives on the court. So during the Warren court, many conservatives said the substantive due process thing is bullshit. We have to go back to procedural due process. And they were all, yeah, 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 yeah. Then all of a sudden comes the question of the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms and some other preferred conservative rights. And in a lot of those decisions, Alito wrote the decision in McDonald versus Chicago in 2010. He said, of course, you have the right to bear arms against it's not just a federally protected right. It's a state protected right. And how do we know that? From the due process clause. It's one of those fundamental rights of a free human being. And Thomas called them out and said, no, we spent too many years arguing against substantive due process yeah. to now restore it for the rights we want. So in that sense, He's got legal right on his side against at least conservatives. But you're also right that it comes from a profound political vision. And I guess I have just a slight different view of that, which is, I mean, I tend to think of Supreme Court justices as political actors. Yep. They all have a political philosophy. Yep. Yep. And their judicial vision is an enactment of that. Now, it's not like Newt Gingrich-style political philosophy or Tom DeLay, even better example, right? You know, I'll just do whatever, you know. It's not like that. It has some level of consistency. I would say, you know, that's Thomas. It's not a certain kind of, you know, academic seminar version of jurisprudence, but nor is it just sort of partisan hackmanship either. Yeah. So the core claim here, and this is pretty deeply socially conservative, is that the what he would call the liberal rights revolution, that that has undermined traditional authority and it has undermined the, the patriarchy and it's produced a morally depraved, decadent society. And there's a quote from your recent piece that I want to read to you because I think it bears on this point and I'm not really sure what to do with it. You write, and now I'm quoting, 
The left ties itself into knots over whether it should defend sexual minorities, dismantle the carceral state, or fight for social democracy. For Thomas, these are three fronts of the same war. To reverse the downward spiral of social decadence and patriarchal decay, conservatives must undo the liberal culture of rights. I don't quite understand how undoing these rights is supposed to ameliorate all this moral anarchy that he is worried about. Why does he think it will? I mean, the first thing I should say is that, you know, if you go back to the 70s, which is this formative moment, this was a pretty common view. I mean, I think you're a little younger than I am, but I think we are sort of of the same generation that kind of grew up in the wake of that. And that was that rights, it's not that rights don't promote anarchy. Rights don't promote disorder. That's not the problem of rights. What the real threat of rights is that they make life too easy. It's dissipation of energy. Hmm. And that what you need to be a really strong, powerful self, especially if you're a man, especially if you're a black man, is a very firm, coercive, disciplinary mode of authority that will say no, that will punish you, that do all of these things that we think of as constraining. In some ways, you could see it as a kind of Aristotelian point of view, a little darker than that, right? But that in the internalization of that punishment, in the interjection of that authority, you will come out of it a kind of a stronger, more agentic, more self-willed form of being. Christopher Lash's Culture of Narcissism or Haven in a Heartless World, these are themes that were big in the 70s and Lash wasn't the only one. All kinds of liberals and conservatives. And so I think that's the idea of rolling back the rights revolution in the end is that rights have made life too easy. I mean, you're a, a Nietzsche scholar. At least some of this should be vaguely familiar. I was just thinking of that. <laughs> you have to create forms of duress yeah. against which and introjecting which, you will become a hardened, harder, more powerful agent of your collective destiny. After we come back from one last break, where does racial pessimism lead? And what work can the political left do to counter it. You said something to me the last time we spoke, and this was a couple of years ago. I've thought about it a lot since, and I was thinking about it a lot when I was preparing for this. And I want to want to read your words back to you and see what you think now. You told me, and now I'm quoting, I hope wrestling with Thomas's conservatism opens up a discussion across the country about where we think racial pessimism leads necessarily. Identifying the structures of oppression is critical, but it's only constructive if we also identify the vulnerabilities of those structures. This is the job of the left, and we'll lose if we cease to do it. You're on the political left. I am on the political left. I've made no attempts to <laughs> conceal that. I think you're right that the left should pause for a moment and really interrogate 
Thomas's ideological journey, because real racial despair is a political dead end, in my opinion, and to the extent that the left is even remotely coherent anymore, and I don't know if it is, I don't think that it's doing what you suggested that it should do. Do you? No. And I want to step back for a second, if you don't mind, to kind of broaden this just a a bit. Sure. One of my favorite books, which you may have also read, is Albert Hirschman's The Rhetoric of Reaction. And Hirschman was a social scientist and economist. And he said there were three main kinds of reactionary arguments. One was perversity. And that is, if you try to make things better, you're going to make them the opposite. You're going to make it worse. So you try to solve poverty, you create more poverty is the classic conservative way of arguing perversity. A second argument is jeopardy. And that is you try to do one thing, you may achieve it, but you're going to jeopardize something else. So again, you try to solve the problem of poverty, but you destroy the black family. But he said there's a third argument. And he's very interesting how he presents it. You know, it's something that has a kind of left-wing corollary. And he called it futility. And he said, this is the most dangerous, most toxic, most lethal conservative argument there is, in part because the left has its own version of it. And the futility argument says, you can have every revolution you want. You can have every civil rights bill, every voting rights act. You can have every inflation reduction act you want, every climate change act. But in the end, you can't do a damn thing. It is absolutely futile. It's hopeless because politics is really not a sphere that can either transform or ameliorate the human condition. And what Hirschman said is that the left has its own version of that argument, which we call structural arguments, right? Marxists, a certain kind of Marxists, I should say, <laughs> love to kind of throw the gauntlet down against liberal reforms. Ah, you think this bill is blah, 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 but look at the structure of power. I mean, I'm being very crude here and deliberately provocative. But unless you deal with the structure, this is window dressing, right? That's the version of the argument on the left. And it's not just about race. It can apply to a great many things. But I think that in the United States, at least, which is what I know best, race was always the master explainer of political futility. Always. Josiah Knott, one of the sort of arch enemies of Reconstruction, would say, you know, This Freedmen's Bureau, what do you think you're going to be able to do to transform black existence? This is part of the architecture of humanity is to be a degraded inferior. And he wasn't doing that to lessen black people. It was just to say this is absolutely futile. Race is the master explainer of political futility. And so I think the left has to be really, really careful knowing these dangers that Hirschman talks about, knowing the role of race as an explainer, as a master explainer, it often carries the edge of futilitarianism. And this is my concern today. You know, I mentioned earlier that I think, especially among academics, you know, a lot of the sort of black political studies and so forth elevates melancholy, elevates persistence, survival, but not transformation. And I don't think you can will hope into being. So I think we have to be also careful on the other end. It's like, there's a reason why these discourses are so prominent and persuasive and powerful. They mirror a world that we live in. And it's hard to believe in getting yourself out of that world. But I think that's where it's not just a kind of optimism of the will. You have to start identifying chinks in the armor. 
I mean, this is, I think, what Marx was very interested in, was like, where are the points of vulnerability? This is why Marx spoke so much about crises in capitalism. And we have to do a version of that today, because I, I just have never been part of a political movement that got anywhere by telling people that, you know, nothing's going to change, but boy, you ought to try and go down fighting. Yeah, You get some people, but you're not going to get the kind of power you need from it. Yeah. Quietism has a kind of philosophical appeal, but politically, it's useless. It's worse than useless, actually. Yeah. It's deadening. Yeah. I mean, because movements are hard. You know, you're asking people to make tremendous sacrifices. They have to believe it's for something. And telling them, well, in a hundred years, it'll pay off. You know, human beings aren't like that. I mean, it's not the rational actor model of if you do this, you're going to get that. But there's got to be some belief that this is possible. Again, not in a namby-pamby Pollyanna way. You have to have real points of analytic entry to offer to people. But we're not good at that these days. Yeah. You know, I do want to get back to Thomas, who in so many ways was very much ahead of the court. He was perched on its most rightward plank for many, many years. And now the court is moved where he is. I'm curious, what do you think he does now or next? I mean, he suggested in his opinion on Dobbs, the abortion decision, that the court should reconsider the legal foundations for other rights like birth control or same-sex marriage conspicuously. Uh, he left up interracial marriage, interracial marriage yeah. in there. But do you think he's deadly serious about that? And if he is, Boy, that's a dangerous road. Yeah, it's interesting. Everybody always thinks Thomas is this hack who's not telling the truth about what he really thinks. And then yeah. here he is, you know, telling people this is what I know. And he's usually been pretty good to his word about that kind of stuff. Just one quick thing about interracial marriage that I, I do think is worth thinking is that it's mostly founded in the Equal Protection Clause, not so much in the Due Process Clause. And so there's some notion there that perhaps that has firmer standing in his mind than the due process reading. But that's just, you know, to point it out. But I mean, I think affirmative action is coming up as a big case. And Roberts has been pretty against affirmative action. But if he decides to do what he did with the abortion thing, it'll be up to Thomas to sign that decision because he's the senior most justice after, after Roberts. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if he assigned it to himself. This is an area where... Again, his jurisprudence is so distinctive on affirmative action. It's not about colorblindness. It's about something else. So I would be watching out for that. He's always taken a far-right position on national regulation and so forth. Gorsuch is now taking over some of that role. So I think we have to watch out there. But yeah. certainly the rights that are on the chopping block from his concurrence, I have no reason to doubt that he will pursue that. Whether the other four justices go with him there, I'm not as attuned. I mean, I'm sure Alito would and Gorsuch probably would. I don't know about the other two. It does seem like the only rights he's truly committed to are the right to private property and the right to bear arms. And that's it. Everything else is superfluous. And that's pretty bleak. But that's what it is. No? Yeah. I mean, I would say he's committed to free speech okay. when it's, it takes the form of money. What we should be worried about is what Kagan said, which is the weaponization of the First Amendment, both the free speech provision and the religious free exercise, which can be really used to undermine a lot of workplace regulations, campaign finance, and all the rest of it. Yeah. So it is, yeah, it's very bleak. And he is sort of at the head of it. And again, I think the question that that raises is, 
what does that tell us? A guy who has the views of race that he has leading this charge against all of these achievements of the 20th century. There's the political question and the normative questions, so forth. But I think analytically, it should scramble some of the ways we think about the way we talk about conservatism and liberalism and the left. There's so many lessons here that I've really, I think I just need to sit with it a little bit longer. But there's just something about his ideological arc that is so revealing and so instructive. This is the great value of your book, I thought, to really bring this to light. It certainly changed the way I hadn't really, well, I just didn't really know that much about him. I guess the caricature of him is what I knew of him. But when you really dig in, there's so much here and it's dark, but boy, is it important. Yeah. I mean, you started this off asking me, why did you write this book? And, you know, an hour later, that really is the answer. It was a real story of surprise. And we live at a moment when there's a lot of bleakness but very little surprise. And I guess in some small way, I hope this little bit of surprise opens some things up in a way that I don't, you know, quite, I haven't figured out myself. But Do you still feel like he's the most powerful black man in America? Oh, yeah, even more so. I mean, when I started writing this book, Barack Obama was still the president of the United States. But yeah, he absolutely is for the foreseeable future. The book is called The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Read that and read his latest piece in The New Yorker called The Self-Fulfilling Prophecies of Clarence Thomas. Corey Robin, thanks for coming in today. I really enjoyed it, man. Me too. Thanks for having me. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And A.M. Hall is our deputy editorial director. Your feedback really helps. So if you have ideas for future guests or topics or really any thoughts at all, send them to voxconversations at vox.com. And if you liked this episode, please share it with your friends. Rate and review. That stuff really helps. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. 